It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show. We're coming to you from the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at 3cr.org.au. Both the BZE community show that you can catch on podcast and this one are also available on iTunes and Stitcher. So please subscribe and rate us to help others find the shows. My name is Natalie Bucknell and I'm joined today by my co-host Kira Rundle. Hi Kira. Hey. Now... Technological solutions for emissions-free transport are rapidly approaching economic parity with fossil fuel transport, and gas-fired electricity can now be replaced with renewables. This has significant implications for the oil and gas industry, but let's not overlook there are other products that are ubiquitous throughout our societies and economies, plastics. A report launched at the World Economic Forum in 2016 by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation showed that there will be more plastics by weight in the ocean than fish by 2050. Isn't that just a stunning statistic? Further, the report also estimates that the global plastics industry will consume 20% of total oil production and 15% of the annual carbon budget. While this already seems like a lot, a lot of plastic and a lot of impact from plastics, add to the equation the fact that China and other developing countries have recently started rejecting the recyclables from Western countries like Australia. And you can see that we are projected to have a massive plastics problem on our hands in the near future. Fortunately, our guest today may have a contributing solution to some of these problems. They have developed a chemical recycling technology that might unlock a plastic-neutral Australia while also providing circular economy opportunities. We're joined on the phone today by Dr Len Humphreys, CEO of Lysella Holdings and developer of the catalytic hydrothermal reactor, which we'll refer to as CAT-HTR. Hi, Len. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Alan. Natalie, how are you? Really good. And you've, we've got Kira here as well. <laughs> oh, hi, Kira. Hello. Say hello, Kira. Hello, Natalie. <laughs> Firstly, Len, can you give us some background on Lysella? Am I pronouncing that correctly? You're pronouncing it perfectly. Okay. Most of colours like Lysella, but actually it's spelled Lysella. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And what, what, mo- what motivated you to develop this technology? Well, um, I have a fossil background, so I'm actually a poacher term gamekeeper. I was found in the, the late 90s. I was involved in oil field development. knew that the reserves and resources they were talking about weren't recoverable. Mm. And then also cognizant of the pollution that some of the misuse of these were taking. So I looked to develop a technology first that could uh, take naturally occurring plastics, as you call them, which are polymers, which is like trees or grasses, and then convert that to a, to a bio-crude, a chemicals that could be used in making modern plastics or one to two fuels. So I started off from the other point of view of making bio products. Mm-hmm. And then we through making it from residues. So, so so that's talking about developing polymers or plastics using non fossil fuel bases. Correct. Okay. Correct. And so 
But no, that's a genetic. How, and how how did that <laughs> develop to to the current cat HTR that we're talking well, about today? That's a great question. If you think about what nature does in a tree, it creates polymers or you know chains of things joined together. You know, so when a tree is hit by sunlight, it's like a, a solar concentrator and takes water and the CO two in the air. It makes a tree or grasses, and these are just long chains. So what we do is we take those long chains, and we convert them to smaller chains, which are liquids. And those liquids can be biochemicals can be used. If you think about plastics, all plastics are is long chains, that, but they're man-made chains, whereas mm-hmm. tree is naturally occurring long chains. The plastics are man-made from fossil oil chains. So all we're doing is then unzipping those chains, those man-made chains, the same way that we can unzip the natural occurring chains. But in unzipping the man-made plastic chains means we can then take the chemicals that made those long plastics and we can reuse them. So it, it didn't take much of a jump for us to think about that. Okay, so you, you've kind of given us a little bit of background in that answer about what's happening in with a catalytic hydrothermal reactor. Can you go into a bit more detail about how that achieves that unzipping? I can, I can. So you, the, 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 the key word in there is hydro, which is water. You know, you've got hydrothermal power, you've got hydro dams. So the key, the key thing for us that helps to uh, unzip these chains, either these man-made chains, these natural occurring chains, is water. You can say, well, how on earth does that happen? Well, you know, we, we we take water for granted. It's actually a very interesting chemical. So water can exist as solid, ice, as we know it, liquid, water, or steam. But if you carry on from that phase, so from the solid to liquid to the vapor, you actually create a, a different phase, which is called supercritical, which is a higher temperature and pressure. And at that point, water actually changes character. So water is like a Jekyll and a Hyde. So at this this fourth state of matter, you could call it, the supercritical state of water, it actually turns into quite an aggressive chemical. And at that point is where it starts to break the chain of naturally occurring polymers, but it can also then unzip the chain of plastic and form, and then take those plastics back to the building blocks that it came from in a very controlled, in a very controlled manner. So would you be able to tell us a little bit more about the energy that's involved in being able to create this supercritical um, water state, or well, I guess the energy involved in the entire process as well? Well, the energy, we're talking about the carbon life cycle analysis, then, you know, by, in, when you're doing naturally occurring polymers, obviously it's trapping, the tree is trapping CO2 from the air, so the life cycle analysis is very low. Talking about man-made polymers, then, you know, in modern engineering, you capture most of the energy you require and you recycle it. So most of the energy required to create the reaction is captured, taken back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Plus, when you unzip these plastics into the, the building blocks that made them, some of the building blocks are actually gases. You can use those gases to, to, to also provide the energy into the process and so to close loop. Mm-hmm. It's an exceptionally efficient process as well. If you take you know, a ton of plastic, just the plastic part, if we conclude both the liquid and the gas we, we can convert about 93% of that back to some usable 
the gas that can drive the process of the liquid. It's exceptionally wow. high efficiency because of how the water, how the water behaves. Mm-hmm. It helps, to, it helps to, to break the chain, but it also helps to, to moderate the reaction to the well. Make sure you get the highest possible recovery of those valuable things that we put into creating those plastics. So give us a, a bit of, in a nutshell, what goes in and what comes out, Len? So you, you get... Well, what goes in is, ex, is ex-consumer. So it, let's start from the beginning. There, yes. are seven, there are seven types of plastics. Most plastics are all in seven categories. When you look at a, a bottle, it has a number on it, anything from one to seven, or any container has a number from one to seven. So there are seven types of plastics that we use as consumers. The most common type is group one and group two, which to you and I, group one is, is Coca-Cola bottles, <laughs> called PET, polyethylene terephthalate, but Coca-Cola bottles, the transparent bottles, you get fizzy drinks in or water, that's, that's the group one. Group two is, is a vision milk bottles, the cloudy things, the plastic milk bottles, which is called high-density polyethylene, and you go on and on. So the most, so most two common ones that come up in society uh, out of group one, group two, and then we move on to group uh, group three and four, which is your carrier bags, your cling wrap, and your other things. So what we take in is all of that mixture. We don't discriminate. So we can take in all of the all of the plastics that, that are that we consume, and the only ones we like to to limit a bit are things like PVC. And the reason for that is there's a particular chemical in PVC that can cause contamination of the final product. So we do like to limit some of that PVC. But with the exception of that, we can mix all of your milk bottles, your Coca-Cola bottles, carrier bags, your cling films, you walk around your supermarket, your pots, tubs and trays. We can put all of that in there and when we can unzip those chains that form those plastics and form the building blocks from which they came. And is that because all of those plastics are made up ultimately of the same building blocks? They are. So they're made up of the same building blocks, but also the fact is that they're all, the commonality is they're all chains, and sometimes the building blocks are slightly different, but the fact they're all chains is, is what we can then simplify those chains, snip those chains apart, Using this critical water. Hmm. So you um, you basically chop up all the plastics and put put that into the reactor. You've got some kind of catalyst. What's the catalyst involved? That's that's just a, a metal entrained in the reactor. What a catalyst does, it just helps the process along. So all a catalyst is doing is facilitating a process. It's like the difference between us walking and we put some skates on and we go faster. So what's mm-hmm. helping us go faster is those skates. So you could say skates the catalyst, helping the process along. So what sort of catalyst are you using in this instance? Uh, it's, just a, it's just a metal. It's a simple metal uh, that you find in, in most sort of stainless steels as well. I, I can't say specific what it is. <laughs> it's proprietary. <laughs> a bit of Kentucky Fried Chicken in there. Okay. <laughs> and um, you also add some heat and pressure. What sort of heat and pressure are we talking about? We go up to, so the, what you've got to get up to is where these chains start to say, mm, I think I'd like to, to, to come apart now. I think you get to the point where the link starts to, starts to say, yes, I think I can start to part from my partner next to me. 
So you have to be in about the three, the three eighty degrees C range, three eighty four hundred degrees C. Mm-hmm. That's also the temperature. That's also the temperature at which the water changes character into the supercritical point, and then controllably and efficiently helps those chains to to come apart to produce a very efficient low-carbon footprint process so we can use these chemicals again. And what sort of pressure were you talking? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's quite high pressure to control this, this energetic thing called supercritical water. It's about 3,500 pounds per square inch. So this is definitely happening in a contained environment. It's in, it's in a contained reactor, correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, and Lynn, what do you get out the other end? What's coming out of the reactor? <clears throat> Well, you get all the, the chemicals that, that form these. Now, in the world of hydrocarbon chemicals, there are groups of chemicals. So you, you tend to create groups that are called like kerosene, which is the lighter fraction, and you get a naphtha fraction, which often that particular fraction is what makes ethylene. And you get a fraction that you can also make, you know, longer chains, um, can make some of the other polymers. So you get the, you get the building blocks from, and, you know, uh, obviously the, the chemistry and these building blocks are quite, you know, diverse and uh, different. So you can't, you know, so you are just getting the diverse different building blocks out, which you can either decide to make further chemicals or you can also decide on some lighter fractions to, to fly planes. So, yeah, is that kind of comparable then to what we would refer to as crude oil? No, no. Now, crude, 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 this is refined. So what we, so what makes these plastics is a refined product. We're turning, we're turning, we're turning those plastics back to the refined product, not crude. Okay, yeah. so then that can just be, as you said, um, then directly used in, say, a jet engine. Yes. Okay. So wow. The light, the fraction could be directly used in a jet engine. Correct. Wow. Okay, and you also have some carbon dioxide as a byproduct. You do. It's quite low um, because, so you know, when you when you tend to to unlock these, these these chains, you can create some some carbon dioxide, but it's not a it's not a great deal. It's quite a lot because of how the water actually moderates the the unlocking of the chain. Okay, so you've got that range of end products. They come out as a mix, and you have to separate them all out. And as you've said, you can redirect them to fuel yep. or to um, future more plastic, pl- more plastic production, more Coca Cola bottles, or <laughs> more milk bottles. Yes, correct. Now, another thing that we found really interesting doing the research for this was um, the idea that not only could you put mixed plastics into the reactor, but um, it wasn't limited by having some degree of contaminants such as uh, paper and other um, natural products. So, yeah, can you tell us a little bit more about that and why that's not an issue? Well, we started off from natural products. We started, the first thing we did with the CAD HDR, was to was to un, unlock the naturally occurring polymers that nature creates. So we we understand how those how to unlock those polymers that nature creates. So when you look around yourself, you know you look at a tree, you look at grasses, and you look at plants. Basically, they're made up of quite similar long chain building blocks, and so. You know, the energy of the sun was going to make them, you know, three ingredients of sunlight, water, and then the photosynthesis 
then builds these long chains from the water and the carbon dioxide and other nutrients. So we learn how to how to, how to un, unzip those naturally occurring chains. So we don't really care if it, if there's bits of paper in there or bits of tree or anything in there in, in the plastics because the the system doesn't see that as a tree, doesn't see it as a as a Coca Cola bottle, doesn't see it as a milk bottle. Mm doesn't see it as grasses, it just sees it as a chain, and then it helps to unlock that chain. So what about other contaminants, such as if there was glass got in there, other things like that? Well, glass is silica, so we can't do much with silica. So glass we would, glass would just precipitate out the system, and we simply collect it. Right. Listeners, if you've just joined us, we're talking to Dr Len Humphreys about CAT HTR technologies for dealing with plastics. So Len Lysella, through a joint venture with Armstrong Chemicals in the UK, is in the process of building the world's first commercial scale hydrothermal upgrading plant for end-of-life plastics. Um, so what has been the, the pathway to this? This isn't the first plant that you've built, is it? No, we, we spent 10 years building the, 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 the pilots right through the commercial pilot. Um, so we have an operation at Somersby, which is just north of, of Sydney, <laughs> um, a, a large commercial demonstration unit. And so all of, all of the design and the work, we spent 10 years. Of course, we started off the journey by understanding how to unlock nature's plastics or polymers. And then we've been adding, how can we find a bridge to a lower carbon future? by reusing the plastics we have. But the, the, Wilton in the, the Wilton plants in the UK, northeast of England, with our partners, will be the first large-scale commercial for consumer plastics, or what they call end-of-life plastics, because you can only, even on plastics that you can recycle, which are commonly physically recycled, like your Coca-Cola bottle or your milk bottle, you can actually only physically recycle that a couple of times because the plastics break down. Okay, and each subsequent use, it's in a more degraded form, is that right? Correct, yeah. Um, so until we've come up with what we can now call chemical recycling, which is what the KED HDR is, mm-hmm. taking those long chain plastics back to simple building blocks, uh, it meant that even with physical recycling of the Coca-Cola bottles and milk bottles, it came to a point where they just have to be disposed. And traditional disposing is burying it, which is criminal in my view, mm-hmm. <laughs> or burning it, which is almost equally criminal mm-hmm. um, because it's gone. So, yes, the Wilson plant will be the first large-scale. So that will process 20,000 tonnes per year of end-of-life plastics. And then, you, you know, you can just add more units if you like. In fact, the Wilson plant is going to build three. So the, the, the complex will process 60,000 tonnes of end-of-life consumer plastic. And, I mean, does that even make a dent <laughs> on what, what would that be as a percentage of um, plastic waste being produced in the UK? Len, do you have any uh, idea? It's a, fairly small, it's a fairly small percentage, but, you know, the, we, we have to take that first step, you know, the first step to a long pathway. It's, I think it's, it's, it's the... Um, you know, can we can scale that. Obviously, we can, we can make much bigger plants 
but we're starting mm-hmm. we're starting to use the, the equipment that's off the shelf and equipment off the shelf and simple because if the process is simple it works it tends to lend itself to an initial I stress initial unit size of about twenty thousand ton per annum. And and this is all Australian technology then, is it Len? Yes it is. It's, yeah. a, it's a great homegrown success story. It, well, we actually, I have to give a give a I actually give some merit to the federal government. We've had about ten million dollars worth of support from government institutions like Arena, mm-hmm. which is a government renewable energy group, and we've successfully competed for three projects that that, that uh, constitutes that ten million. So <laughs> we are the love child of the federal government, which we have to give them credit for. The disappointing thing is that after they gave us that initial initiation and growing up, the incentives to do this are much greater in Europe. So that's why we're doing it in Europe. However, as you saw maybe from recent announcements, we've just partnered with New Zealand's largest recycler of -of end-of-life paper, end-of-life plastic, OG. And so we're now going to bring this and build it over in our part of the world. And we're also pretty close to looking at partnerships within Australia uh, to turn that large-scale demonstration system that we built at Summersby into a smaller-scale full-time commercial unit. Well, I think so, that's... So, so I think we've got some good news coming out for Australia and New Zealand in the, in the next six months as well. Yeah, and we just saw an article in The Age this morning... I'm talking about how there's recycling, mixed recycling, piling up in Melbourne warehouses um, that's unfortunately not being recycled at the moment. So there's certainly a need within Australia to have a plant like this up and running, hopefully very soon. (laughs) There's a massive need, because as you said, um, the beginning, we used to, the world, not just us, the world used to ship millions and millions of tons of post-consumer plastics to, to China. And when China said enough, you know, our embarrassment became obvious. That's mm-hmm. why that's why the piling up around the world, not just in in Victoria, around the world, because we ourselves never took the responsibility to 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 to, to responsibly recycle materials, mm-hmm. which are very capable of being recycled. They're not they're not waste. They're a resource. We just have to recognise them as that and then put the, the infrastructure in place. Because, you know, it, it, it actually is a net gain. You know, we, mm-hmm. recycling these, these plastics is a net gain for society. We're reusing that, and, you know, we can have our own fuel from that if we choose to make fuel, or we can have our own new plastics and milk bottles and Coca-Cola bottles. That's what we choose to do, but it gives us that choice locally. So is that, I mean, obviously that's driven largely by economic factors and does the price of crude impact on the economics of recycling to get those same products, Len? Um, obviously, it has an impact. But, you know, because of our efficiency of process, we can, we can reprocess, we can convert these plastics back to oil even at quite a low oil price, significantly below where it is today. I think, you know, oil has to be down towards $30 $35 uh, in the economics that we have available today before it said, well, economically, it doesn't, it doesn't count. But then you've got to factor in socially and also environmentally. So yeah. even, mm-hmm. even down there, 
you still might have a, a very good pressing reason why you should be doing it. Absolutely, and it's becoming more pressing by the day, isn't it? So what sort of cost is it um, per tonne of, of plastic waste to, to process with a CAT HDR? Well, we can process it through a, the large-scale unit that we talked about in the UK. For We can do it for around $25 a barrel. So that's our, that's our UK sort of scale break-even price. So we can put now, so around economic-wise, just talking pure economics, that's part of the social responsible and the environment. For now, for pure economics, we can make it work around 25 US dollars a barrel. Okay, and um, how does it compare with pyrolysis in terms of um, yields? Uh, we're about double the yield. Okay, yeah, that's very significant, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and are, th- are there any downsides to this technology, Len? Downsides. <laughs> Does not I compute. I, I wish I could do it without heating it up, but I can't. So the downside is we have to put a bit of energy in, but we mm-hmm. try and recover that. And how are you planning to generate that energy? Oh, well, it comes from, a lot of it comes from the from the products that we produce. As I said, when we unzip the building blocks of the plastics, we produce uh, liquids and gases. So we use the gases substantially to drive the energy of the process via either a, a boiler. We can also use the gases in a gas reciprocating engine should we need should we need electrical energy. So we can actually almost do a closed-loop mm. energy system. Yeah, and I think that closing, closing that loop is also something that we talked about in the intro as well, that this was a way that not only is your process um, almost a closed-loop system, but it's a way to close that loop also within the plastics economy as yeah. well. Yeah. And it's preventing so, emissions of greenhouse gases mm-hmm. from plastics just breaking down in the environment well, as well. The other really interesting thing is, which I'm sure interest your viewers would be, your listeners would be <laughs> intrigued at, is we spent, we spent what, 80, since, since the intervention of plastics, let's say 45, 50 years ago, we buried them. So mm-hmm. what, we've, what we've created is an oil field. So why wouldn't we <laughs> yes. go back? Why wouldn't we go back? And harvest those landfills. Yeah, they're very accessible, aren't they? So we've got we've got fifty years of energy in the ground that we can even go back and do, which will then really, really help us, such that we don't need to recover fresh mm. fossil oil. We have a massive resource in the ground in, in old landfills that we could harvest. That's a great note to yeah. finish on, yeah. Len. So <laughs> thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you for asking me. I appreciate it. And um, where can listeners find out more? They can go to our website, lysella.com. Okay, that's nice and straightforward. <laughs> L-I-C-E-L-L-A.com, listeners. Correct. Okay, thanks very much, Len. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. We've been speaking to Dr. Len Humphreys from Lysella Holdings. The Beyond Zero show is brought to you by the climate change solutions think tank, Beyond Zero Emissions, and is recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Previous episodes of the show are available on iTunes and Stitcher. Please subscribe and help others find the show. If you enjoy the program and can donate to help cover airtime costs and keep us on the air, please go to the BZE website and click on the Donate button. Thanks for listening and we look forward to you joining us again next week. Beyond Zero Emissions is an internationally recognised climate solutions think tank that is focused on solutions, not problems. Become part of the solution by becoming a monthly base load supporter Go to www.bze.org.au to find out more. bze.org.au
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.